Hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. If not now, when? Today, everybody, I have a special guest flying all the way from UK for all of you. We got James Lowe here with us. And James, today he is a co-founder and CEO at Mona, a platform for everybody to share their passion, whether it's one-on-one session, live classes, or subscription content. Mona, wow, closed 1.5 million euro at pre-C1 in three months ago, which is impressive. And prior to entrepreneurship, James was a SoftBank Vision Fund, where he worked on strategic transition at WeWork and ARMS and that social impact initiatives such as SoftBank's COVID-19 response and UNICEF ITU Giga, an initiative formed by Elon Musk, which we all love, and endorsed by the U.S. Secretary General to connect every school to the internet. Uh, he was also previously a McKinsey consultant. That means he is so smart. And... <laughs> Oh my God, I just love your story, James. He was also the head of UK business development at Generation, a youth employment charity. He graduated from LSE with a first class honor in government, a Sir Edward Youth Memorial Scholar in 2016, and was selected Fellow of Royal Society of Arts in 2019. Wow, so fancy. I love that. Today, he is really proud to build a business, a startup really true and core to his own mission and passion. With that, everybody, I'm just so, so, so excited. And thank you so much, Jim, for joining us. And welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for the great introduction and uh, great to be with you. Yes. And wonderful, James. You have such a magical journey. So tell us, how does everything all begin? Yeah, well, um, it all began in Hong Kong. Uh, I was born there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I grew up all my life there until I was 16 years old. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, um, you know, when I was in primary school, I was doing quite well. I was like, you know, I thought I was really smart. I was like, yeah, you know, this is so great. Um, and then, you know, basically that this, this sort of um, grade skipping thing happened. So, so when I was in P5, they sort of let me skip a grade. And then my academics started going downhill like crazy. Right? So. So, you know, I, I sort of skipped my grade and uh, I couldn't handle it. Um, I also changed schools and so I wasn't very used to it. Um, it. It became really challenging for me. And it all sort of peaked in year nine when, uh, you know, I went down from a, you know, from, from like, you know, in, in Hong Kong, you have all these classes uh, based on how good your grades were. And I went from the top class to the bottom class <laughs> in the space of like two years. Um, and... Uh, it got so bad that at one point I was I was ranked 180th out of 220 students. <laughs> I remember it was quite traumatic, um, and um, and so I was doing pretty badly until uh, a headmaster of the school at the time, um, who also conducted the choir, um, sort of saw some potential in me and, and gave me a, a chance and and sort of got me into a program uh, for the IB program, like International Baccalaureate inside the school, and so that was pretty much a turning point for me because. Um, I went from you know doing very badly to suddenly having a lot more freedom to learn the things I wanted to and so on and so forth. Um, and I found a lot of my passion in things like debating and singing in choir and all kind of stuff. So I, I, I started to find my feet a little bit more. Um, but yeah, so so went from there. And then uh, you know when I graduated from high school, I decided I didn't want to go to university uh, immediately. 
And uh, I rejected all my university offers. Um, and then I went on the streets <laughs> and started protesting wow. Hong Kong, uh, which was a bit crazy. Um, but I'll pause there for now. You know, that was where the story started. I grew up in Hong Kong and uh, had a bit of an up and down journey in high school um, before I, I eventually came over to the UK. Oh, my God. That is. Wow. And James, first of all, what, what inspired you to not go to university? Because that is a lot of courage to reject all your applications and say, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm just going to figure it out from there. What what inspired you? What what do you want from there? And how do you, from that point, come to UK? Yeah, so I must say, I didn't have a amazing vision at the time of what I wanted to do in my life. Um, you know, it, it, I rejected my university offers, uh, you know, the first time around out of a sense of frustration, basically. Frustration at what I wanted to do in my life and frustration of the fact that people had sort of paved all these paths that I didn't believe in. Um, so, you know, when I was growing up, uh, everyone around me thought, you know, you're good at debating, you're good at English, you should become a lawyer, right? It, it was like, you know, <laughs> that definitely that's the path, right? Um, and so I built up everything I did towards becoming a lawyer. Uh, you know, the subjects I chose, the grades I was gunning for, everything I applied for to become a lawyer. But the truth is that um, I was bored to death by the law. Right? Uh, the law was just not interesting in any way to me. Um, I was sort of marginally interested in academic issues that are more political than law anyway. Um, so I, I, I wasn't into it. And then I realized that um, as I looked at my you know, offers at the time, if I had gone on to study law, that was it. That was my life. Um, if you do a law degree, you go off and be a lawyer. It's very hard to change careers after that. Um, so for some reason, at the age of 16, I will have completely settled what I was going to do in my life. And I hated that. Um, and so uh, I had a big, big argument with my parents. Um, and, uh, and I ended up just sort of deciding to quit all my offers and, and sort of leave. Um, and my parents were extremely worried. Uh, and they were a little brokenhearted because it's, you know, they wanted me to be a lawyer. Um, but one of the bets I made with my dad at the time was, hey, you know, if you let me do this, um, I will go and try and win a scholarship so that you would never have to pay for my university uh, you know, um, education again. And you'd never have to pay for my education any point after that again. Uh, but I have to do this because if I don't do this, I'm not being true to myself and I'll regret this for the rest of my life. Um, so yeah, that's what, what drove me. It was a sense of frustration more than a sense of a grand vision or anything like that. It's fascinating that you said you were 16 years old and you already have that vision about making a choice that's true to yourself. How do you able to have that clarity in such a young age? That's such an incredible, incredible insight. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I, I think it probably came about from the school I was in, actually. Um, so I went to a school called Dawson Boys School, um, which has this incredibly strong sense of identity among the, the, the sort of students, even now. Um, you have alumni coming back all the time, sort of uh, trying to relive their childhood years and that kind of thing. Um, and one of the core things that that place emphasized was um, freedom and, and sort of giving people early responsibility to fail. And so I got used to it, I guess. <laughs> we did a bunch of, uh, you know, I was, I was sort of leading teams in choirs and debating and all kind of stuff. And we failed all the time. We, we had, you know, big losses in competitions, um, you know, big arguments inside the team, all kind of stuff. But um, it sort of encouraged you to think on your own and, and lead on your own and, and sort of live your own life in a way and make your decisions. Um, and so it sort of translated back to the decisions I was making in my own life of going, do you really want to follow the path that everyone's paid for you or do you actually want to go figure it out? Um, 
And so, so yeah, to some extent, it might be a little bit innate, but to a big extent, it's probably also, well, you know, the school is going to that, that sort of framed a lot of thinking in my head. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's beautiful. So 16, you reject all the university applications, you go on the street. <laughs> Tell us from that point, what did you do at the time? And how do you come to UK from there? Yeah, yeah. So um, at the time, there's a massive protest in Hong Kong in 2012 um, uh, about a national education policy. And there was a 13-year-old kid called Joshua Wong leading a massive protest, right? And, and it, was, uh, it was getting really, really big. And um, so I had just graduated from high school. Uh, it was sort of May that year. Um, and a lot of my friends were sort of going on the streets and, and joining in. And um, a very good friend of mine who is now a human rights barrister was like, hey, do you want to help coordinate, um, you know, a bunch of student unions who want to join this protest. And so uh, we ended up getting together, you know, initially around 100 student unions or so who were interested in, in sort of joining the protests. Uh, and I became one of the coordinators and we sort of started uh, protesting on the streets and, you know, protesting inside the schools. It went, it went completely crazy. Um, so I did a lot of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were really a very small part of a much bigger social movement um, uh, you know, and, and it ended with the government retracting the policy in September. So um, the government retracted, you know, the, the movement sort of dissipated because we had achieved the goal. Um, and I was standing there going, I have no university offers. It's only September. So I still have a whole year at the very least. Like, what am I going to do in my life? Um, so I ended up uh, starting a charity that um, initially trained students in debating. Um, and so uh, it was called Flashpoint. And basically, the idea was to train um, underprivileged students in debating. And, uh, and so I started with my girlfriend at the time, who is now an incredible barrister in her own right. Um, and uh, you know, we decided to, to, to sort of do this um, and train you know, as many students as we can. And we thought at the beginning, we're like, oh, maybe it's going to be a, a, a sort of um, chill out, you know, train 30 kids, uh, like do a little workshop type thing. Then we opened applications for it, and you know, within around two weeks, four hundred schools signed up. Uh, sorry, four hundred students signed up, <laughs> and so we're like, "Wow, that's a lot of kids. What are we gonna do?" So we started getting a lot more of our high school uh, friends and university friends to come in, and so uh, we ended up with around sixty tutors in the first year, and, and people started going into schools to train people in debating. Um, and then Google funded us with a, a program called Empowering Young Entrepreneurs Program. Um, and then we had, you know, the Chief Justice of Hong Kong became a patron, and it just started taking off like this. And so um, throughout this time, you know, it was becoming more and more successful. There was a lot of publicity surrounding it, um, but there were there were sort of some nagging feelings in, my, in the back in my head, going, you know, one, it's not very sustainable, uh, in that I felt like once I left Hong Kong, it was probably very hard to keep it going. Um, but second, that you know. Uh, what was really making me happy was not so much the, you know, let's go off on the newspapers and try to spread this or make this a 3,000-person organization or anything like that. Um, it was really more the classes I was going to to teach the kids. Like, I, I felt that was amazing. You know, I loved it. Um, and so in the back of my head, I was like, how, how do I pass this on in some way? So I eventually uh, merged it with a charity that um, some of my mentors had founded in the debating community uh, and sort of took it there. And so I moved from there, um, you know, to applying for university and, you know, I applied for university again and applied to the UK. Um, I applied for a scholarship called the Sir Edward uh, Memorial Scholarship and won it that year. And so that meant that it would pay for my whole university education. So I, wouldn't, uh, so I fulfilled my promise to my dad. Um, and then I decided to come to the UK. 
Um, and so in my head at the time, I was still thinking I'll become some politician. So, you know, uh, so I, I chose to study politics uh, and economics um, and, uh, and uh, you know, got an offer at LSE and then came over here. Wow. <laughs> That's so much story to unpack there. And I, I love that you just start a charity because you felt it was the right thing to do. And then a year to see how it grows and organically, you know, spawning such a huge thing. And and then you still having true to your own vision and decide that you can still do your own. You could totally just say, you know, I'm gonna stay in Hong Kong, everything's good, I will run this. I'm very, you know, say popular, significant, whatever way you want to use, you are you know very influential in Hong Kong at the time, you could use that to continue to grow, but you decide to not to do that, continue to choose the path. Was that a was that a difficult choice at the time? Hmm. Well, that's just straightforward to you. Yeah, it it was quite straightforward in my head. It was really weird. I, I mean, I um, first of all, in starting the charity, um, it was very straightforward because uh, I, I was in the Hong Kong national debating team at the time, um, and basically every year there's a world debating championships for all the high schools, and um, and Hong Kong has its own national team. I've been the captain for three years, but as I looked back at that team, it became very obvious that. Um, the only kids who were getting into that team were the elite school kids. Right? It, it was like, you're either a uh, foreign person who speaks English perfectly because it's your native tongue uh, and you're in an international school, or you are from some super elite school. And universally, you know, as I looked at it and I was like, you know, who is the smartest debater I know? Um, it wasn't really the elite school kids. Right? Um, they were often the kids who were um, in much more challenging backgrounds, but had um, real life experiences on the social issues we debated about, um, who had very authentic and interesting perspectives on those things. And the thing they were lacking was not so much um, talent, it was opportunity. Right? They, they needed a way to, to build on, the, on their talents. And so as I looked at it, I was like, of all the things I could possibly be doing right now, this is possibly the thing that would use my talent in the most effective way and would help the most people. So I was like, I'm just going to go do this thing and, and see what happens. Um, so that felt really obvious to me. You know, it was like, you know, I'm just going to do this. Um, and to be honest, I had no idea it was going to turn out that way. <laughs> in my head at the time, I was like, I'm going to end up training like 30 kids in some school somewhere. And it's going to be that. Uh, but, but it turned completely uh, a totally different direction. Um, and, uh, and my girlfriend at the time was, was pretty critical to, to making it um, the success that it was. Um, and, uh, and she sort of drove me a lot to think that way too, of making me um you know make those decisions so so yeah so it was very interesting um but yeah that it was all quite straightforward to me at the time that's incredible so now you decided how to uk tell us how it's like unfold from there yeah so um you know i came to london uh studied politics thought i was going to become a politician um then in my second year uh so I, I got elected like president of this hong kong society um in in LSE. And uh, at the time, there was an association of all the Hong Kong societies in the UK. Um, and there's a rotational chairmanship for that. And uh, that year, the rotational chairmanship came to LSE as well. So for, you know, for the first time in a long time, LSE somehow was like, you know, head of all these, uh, you know, societies out there. Um, so at the time, I didn't think much of it. I was like, we'll just organize events like we usually do. And, you know, things will happen. Then uh, that year, the umbrella movement happened, right? So, you know, this massive protest in Hong Kong where people occupied the government headquarters and, you know, it, it sort of lasted for 70 to 80 days. Um, and so suddenly there was pressure on foreign students to voice out again, right? It was, like, you know, 
uh, we, we need someone to, to sort of say, will we support democracy? You know, how are we going to do this? And so, again, I was thrust into a position where we had to do something about it. You know, it would be irresponsible for us not to do it. Um, and so we ended up partnering with a bunch of uh, organizations in London where we, we did things like we occupied the street outside the Chinese embassy and did a bunch of protesting out there. You know, we went back to Hong Kong, did all kind of stuff there too. Um, and um, it, it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, the, the government sort of re re like repelled all of the, uh, you know, protest demands and uh, the movement dissipated. And so I had a pretty big reflection around that time of what do I actually want to do with my life? Um, do I want to go down this um, path to martyrdom, which is, you know, very political, would probably be very ethically persistent uh, and consistent with what I believe, but which probably has no future? Or do I believe I can do more good um, pursuing a somewhat more commercial path and try to scale social impact in another way? Um, and perhaps impacting not just Hong Kong, but in, in other dimensions as well. And I also had a big reflection of what actually interests me, you know, what actually um, is something that drives me. I realized that politics, as much as I enjoyed thinking about it, was not something I enjoyed when it came down to the um, to the politicking, right? So, you know, I, I saw some of my friends were very good at the politicking, the the sort of how do you shaft someone in the back and, you know, uh, and build a movement and, you know, find out how to sort of create blackmail and, you know, all kinds of um, I couldn't do any of it. Like, I, I literally felt dirty doing it. And, uh, and I felt really, really uh, conflicted when I did any of those things. And so instead, uh, what really, uh, you know, incentivized me and motivated me were, was the social work, right? The, um, the impact-oriented entrepreneurship. And that was what, you know, really made me, uh, you know, energized. And so I went down that direction. And uh, I left university and went to uh, McKinsey, you know, as a management consultant. I still very much had the sort of entrepreneurship and social impact angle in my head. So I was like prioritizing a lot of projects that would give me those skills. And then around a year and a half into McKinsey, um, a senior partner at McKinsey had started a charity called Generation, which is a youth employment charity that trains at-risk young people into jobs. And she was interested in bringing it to the UK. Um, there was a team at McKinsey that already set up the UK operations and got it running a little bit. But they were now going to really formalize it and have a proper team that's going to run it. And so they hired an external CEO and they needed someone to lead the business development side of things to actually help get employers on board to develop the training programs. So I joined that team um, and started doing the work. And, uh, and it was a charity that trained um, you know, people who were going through extremely challenging circumstances. Right? Uh, they might have you know, grown up in council housing and, and have uh, you know, really violent neighborhoods and never really got the education they needed, never realized what path they could go on. Someone further than that had been homeless for a long time and, and didn't really know how to get back on their feet. Um, and we would train them into cloud operations engineers at Amazon Web Services, <laughs> which is like a complete change in, in dynamics. Uh, or nursing assistants at the NHS, still a massive step up what they were doing. Um, and so it was a fascinating time because I had to talk to a lot of employers to figure out who has the appetite to hire people from diverse backgrounds and who is willing to take the chance on developing training programs where that invest a lot of money to, to make this work. Um, and so uh, I learned a lot more about how education works around that time. Why social impact is so important to you, Jen? Because it sounds like a quite consistent thing from your 16 years old, the choice you made until up to this point. Why does that matter so much to you? Yeah, it's difficult to describe what started this. So it's, it's always felt very authentically um, 
you know, innate to me. And, and, and that if, if I had to ask myself, what is the thing that is the most meaningful thing I can imagine myself doing? It's always something related to social impact, right? Whether it's um, whether it's helping underprivileged kids get university or adverse young people get a job, whatever it is, um, it's just very core to me that you know if you've succeeded for some reason um, and you've benefited from huge advantages given to you by society, there's something you you need to do there to give back. Um, but if I had to guess what what made this so innate. Um, it probably started from my grandfather, which is <laughs> a, a, a very rare tangent to, for us to go on. But you know, my my mom's side grandfather in particular, um, who I enormously respected when I was a kid, and he died when I was around nine years old. So uh, you know, he, he died very early. Um, but he was a uh, you know socialist at heart uh, in Hong Kong, which is a terrible ideology to, to have when you're, you know, under British colonial Hong Kong, right? Um, and then, you know, was ahead of his own village uh, and then built a department store in Hong Kong to become extremely successful. Um, and then built a string of other businesses in there that, that you know, were things like slaughterhouses in Hong Kong for, uh, for food right? <laughs> uh, and stuff like that. And it became very successful. Um, and was this enormously respected person that people loved because he didn't centralize all the money around himself. He didn't have that much money. Um, you know, he sort of just funneled all that money into improving his community, whether whether it's his village or his, uh, you know, we were Hakka. So, so you know, the, the whole Hakka community around there. Um, he was very dedicated to that. And when I was younger, I, I respected him because I loved who he was as a person, how he talked to him. But I, I didn't fully understand who he was, right? I, I was too young. Then as I grew up, um, my mom would bring me back to this sort of old house that my grandfather lived in, uh, and he preserved all his diaries. Um, uh, and, uh, and so I'd read them. And these diaries had these incredible quotes in them, right? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, the one that stuck with me a lot was, um, you know, uh, you have to, you know, you have to look downwards at your footsteps as you walk. And always walk, uh, always walk upwards uh, in your flow. So what that means is that always, you know, stick to your present and stick to your reality, where you are, you know, focused on, you know, real work that matters. Um, but always go upwards and, and, and sort of, you know, uh, accumulate it over time. I loved it. Um, uh, and, and the other thing was that the only thing that gives you satisfaction is um, being true to yourself. Right, and this is all written in Chinese, but uh, I won't just say that this time. But but basically, you know, that, that was the message, and, and I loved it. Um, and so I think those things accumulated in my head, and it was like you know, my uh, the the person that I admired so much when I was younger had driven um, a lot of the philosophy behind uh, what I really wanted to do. Wow, that is really beautiful that you had the chance to read his diary and really take all those essence, wisdoms, insights with you. You know, even though he parted ways when you were young. And I'm curious, you know, because your grandfather is such a respectful socialist, yeah, businessman in Hong Kong, does that shape who you are today? Do you always know that you will come into business world, you will into entrepreneurship? Is that is that a connection there? Yeah, I had absolutely no idea actually. Um, so I never thought I would become an entrepreneur until quite late. So um, when I was younger, uh, when I was like you know 14 to 16, let's say. Um, people looked at me and they either thought I was going to become a lawyer or a journalist. Uh, so you thought, you know, he's he's very nosy. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he writes very well, um, and 
he cares about a lot of issues, which, which kind of suits the journalist type route. Um, I had very little understanding of any other type of career. I didn't understand what bankers did, consultants. I, I, I didn't understand any of it. Um, and I also never understood what entrepreneurs truly did, right? You know, I was like, you know, what does that mean? You know, you're creating a business, whatever. Um, I grew up in a very Hong Kong style understanding of entrepreneurship where, you know, if you create a business, it's like, you know, you go run a uh, shop, you know, down, down the line, right? Or, you know, you're building a supply chain logistics business where you import stuff. You know, that, that's sort of the, the, the entrepreneurship in my head. I wasn't creating a tech company or anything like that. Um, and so, so I never got really that attracted to it. There's only one moment in, in my young sort of childhood that I remember connecting to this was um, when I was in primary six and I was reading an article and I was reading an English article in class. Um, and at the time, you, you had to do this thing where you have to stand up and you have to sort of read it out to the whole class. So I was reading it. And it got to a word where I couldn't pronounce it. I was like, what, what is this word? You know, entre, entre, you know, whatever it is. And then my teacher was like, entrepreneur. And I'm like, what does that actually mean? And he's like, well, it means someone who's very innovative, who's very creative, who builds something. And I'm like, that is super interesting. <laughs> I never thought of this. Thing. Like, that is so cool. Um, and I never thought about it that much afterwards, right? It was just there. You know, it was one of the words that I, I couldn't pronounce. And I was like, oh, oh wow, okay, I'll learn a new word. Um, but years later, I look back and I was like, wow, you know, that, that stuck with me more than almost any moment in primary six. And that was really weird, right? I was like, you know, this wow. is really odd. And so things like this accumulated, I think. Um, but ultimately, uh, as I look back, yes, my grandfather was a big source of inspiration. Like he, he makes me feel like I could do this too. Um, but certainly, it was not clear at all uh, throughout my earlier years that this was going to happen. So that's so beautiful. So tell us, how does that actually come to your mind? How do you realize, wow, I'm actually made to do this? What is that moment? What does that inspiration come to you? Do you remember that? Is mm -hmm. that moment? So mana is almost like a culmination of a few years of thinking. Um, and the first moment when I felt like I, I have to go do something was around two years into McKinsey. And um, I'd always thought, you know, I need to figure out whether I'm more suited to a job or a business. Um, because part of me always felt like maybe I would actually enjoy being a McKinsey, like, you know, Go, go off and be a partner and, and travel around the world and make PowerPoint decks. You know, I, I was like, maybe I'll like that. Um, but then when I was two years in McKinsey, I realized I loved all the people I met there. Like I loved the mentors, I loved the people I was working with. I, I could party with them all night and I could chat with them all day. You know, it, it was great. I, to some extent, liked the work a lot. I, I liked wrestling with these questions. Um, and the pay was fantastic. The benefits was amazing and I could travel the world. I could not imagine a better job than that uh, at that point. But then I still felt dissatisfied. And it was becoming more and more strong in my, in, in, inside me going, I'm not being myself. I'm not expressing myself fully. There's some part of me that's not there. So that was when I first started realizing, OK, maybe it's not enough for me to be in a job. Maybe I actually do need this entrepreneurship component. Like I, I actually just need to start my own business. Um, and then I started going into, you know, what, what is the business that I actually want to start? And I realized also that I would never want to do things like a, a B2B fintech business or, a, you know, e-commerce marketplace. I think like uh, it, it wasn't exciting me. The thing that really excited me was how do you unlock people's potential? Right? That, that, was, that, that was what's exciting to me. And that suggested to me you know, I would either end up starting a charity or a you know, business that surrounds individuals. Um, 
then I went into generation, and uh, it was enormously insightful and interesting and inspirational. Um, and one of the things that, that that sort of triggered me was like, okay, it focused my attention on one big problem in my lifetime, which is the fourth industrial revolution creating massive amounts of unemployment. Um, and uh, and I found that to be a, a sort of pretty big focal point for me. I was like, you know, this is something I want to solve in my lifetime. And and I felt like it was it was crazy. It was um, so many people's lives would be affected by it. Um, but then I kept going round and round because I couldn't find a good solution to that problem. Uh, generation felt to me to be the clearest solution in a physical sense, right? Where you, you have boot camps that train people to new jobs. It takes you just anywhere between four to eight weeks to train them. Um, and uh, it was reasonably scalable. Like uh, generation has trained around 35,000 people around the world in around four years. So it's reasonably scalable. Um, but when we're talking about 400 million people getting displaced from their jobs, uh, by 2030, <laughs> it's like there's no way these boot camps are going to solve the problem, right? So, so what is the like what is the bigger picture? Um, and so I've been thinking about this and trying all kinds of different models, and still I couldn't find a way to make it commercially sustainable and socially impactful. And it was only until late last year, um, during COVID 19, when three sort of trends uh, sort of crystallized in my head. The first trend was the transition from a company-based way to make a living to a creator-based and passion-based way to make a living. So it was that since the Industrial Revolution, we've created this economy where you know companies aggregate people, we give up what we love, and we go find a job, and we work for 40 or 50 years, and then we retire and we die. right? Uh, and, uh, and we've completely given up what we want to do because that's the only way to make money in an economy like this. But if you look back before the Industrial Revolution, the economy is very much craftsman-based, right? There was a lot of artisans, a lot of craftspeople, lots of apprenticeships within families to build things out. Um, but it was also very unequal. Like you, you had kings and queens with massive wealth and then, you know, um, uh, not, a, not a lot of wealth elsewhere. But now you have this unique opportunity through the internet where individuals can develop their own niches with their own loyal fans and develop their own content and sell them. And they can sell it to anywhere in the world. And it could sell content in almost all its forms, whether it's physical or virtual. And so I looked at that and went, there is a massive opportunity here of just a, a economy built around passion and built around individuals and persons as brands, right? You know, that, that, was, that was becoming massive. Then the second thing was um, live streaming and video technology made it for the first time possible for extremely talented teachers to distribute their knowledge globally. Um, and it was clear at the K-12 level already where you have, especially in developing countries, um, urban teachers providing live stream teaching to rural areas. And it was happening more and more. But then in my head, it was like, why couldn't we get more and more people to be teachers in all kinds of things beyond academics and beyond curriculums where anyone can teach their skills? And not enough people in my head at the time were, were truly teachers uh, sharing their skills in that way. I was like, how do we incentivize people to do that? Because with with the technology we have now, right now, we could actually get them to spread their skills in so many ways. And if we're going to retrain 400 million people, we need at least you know 20 million teachers, if not more, right? Maybe 40 million teachers, or even more than that. So, so we had to make that happen. So that's the second trend. You know, video is making it possible to uh, to, to allow talented people to distribute their skills globally. And the third thing is that there are many diverse methods of monetization happening. And as you look at monetization as it stands today, you know, advertising monetization is terrible, right? You know, it takes you 35 million views a year to get to monetization. Um, 
you know, to, to get to the sort of average household income. Um, and uh, it's, it's um, only around 3% of people on YouTube make above the average household income. And even with subscription models, only 2% of people on Patreon are making above the federal minimum wage. So the existing monetization methods are pretty bad. If you look at places like China, the methods of monetization are much more interesting, right? You know, you're, you're gifting and live streams, you have people booking, uh, buying books by the chapter, um, you know, you have merchandise by influencers, um, you have, you know, people being able to snippet particular parts of live streams and pay for that ability to snippet. Um, you know, all these interesting methods of monetization. And as I looked at it and paired it up with the live streaming technologies for learning and paired it up with the person-based businesses, it became quite clear there's an opportunity here to build a business that is focused on the personal brand of the creator, that is methods of interaction that emphasize personalized access with one-to-one -one classes, one-to-many live streams, and so on. And then you know, has a business model that allows you to earn enough money with uh, 100 to 1,000 true fans instead of a million views. Um, and so that crystallized into mana and what I want to do in education. Um, so yeah. Uh, that's that's the inspiration. Wow. And I'm curious, James, you know, of course, you have so much passion, so much light shining to us. You kind of speaking about the thought process and how you come to Mana. I'm curious, were you never afraid? When a question is quizzed to you, yes, this is opportunity. Yes, this is what I want to explore. But then you had to walk away from all the things you have built. It's just like the choices you made when you were 16 years old. Were you never afraid and just move forward? Oh, they would always make a choice like that. Yeah, I, I was very afraid, I have to say. Um, very, very afraid. But I think in my risk calculations, I always over-index on the, the potential positive outcome and the negatives of where I am right now. You know, th those are two things that I over-index on. And so that, that, by nature, pushes me to take more risks. Right? So you know, in, in, when I was 16, it was like, it was very clear to me that if I became a lawyer, I would be very depressed and I would, I would regret for the rest of my life that I made that decision. Um, it also became quite clear to me that if I went down this direction, in the 1% chance that it made, uh, like it actually worked, um, I would be so, so happy. So I was like, yes, I'll do that. Then when I left SoftBank, it was much harder. Um, I, I was looking at a situation where, you know, your salary is going up, you are doing great in your job, like you're, you have a great team. Um, you could theoretically stay for quite a while, right? It, it could be very interesting for a while. Um, but I looked at it and went, you know, if I waited another five years, the thing I want to do would probably be built by someone else. Um, if I waited another five years, the salary and the position you're in would mean that you probably wouldn't want to leave at all, especially if you have a family and, you know, you're, you've built up something more strong and you have a mortgage and everything. It becomes much harder to leave. Um, and you know, the 1% chance that this company, you know, goes well is so enticing, so revolutionary, so inspiring in my head that I would much rather run down that direction and, and see where it works out. Um, and so I looked at that and went, you know, if I had to think about in 10 years time, looking back at these decisions, what would I regret the most? I would regret the most if I didn't take this leap. I would regret it even if I became a partner at SoftBank making a million or whatever it is, or, or some other place where I'm making a ton of money, um, I would still regret it. So I was like, okay, I just have to do this. You know, I just have to go. So, um, so yes, I was extremely scared. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to pull off or not. Um, but uh, by nature, I think the way I weigh up decisions bias me towards taking the risks. 
and it could blow back big time at some point in my life. <laughs> but for now, it feels um, it feels like it's it's paying off. Wow, it's so beautiful, James. You know, you remind me of what you said about when you read your grandfather's journal when he said, "Focus on the boot." You know, the step ahead, and at the same time, also looking ahead. I felt like you always looking ahead while focusing on one step at a time. So I felt like, you know, it's so beautiful. I see how it all come back together. So now let's go back to entrepreneurship. And today, Mana, you just started. You closed 1.5 million euros of free zero, which is really impressive. Tell us, how do you do that? And what is your, you know, secret success source? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the secret success is I got very lucky. <laughs> That's very much it. But uh, you know, so I raised my four, first five hundred thousand uh, pounds at the beginning of the business um, as a price equity round um, when I met my current investors, and um, I had no company, no prototype, nothing. Um, I had a Figma sketch and an idea. Right, that that was it. Um, and, um, and I think what translated to them was. I was trying to tell the story for why I was doing this. And it, it was not so much about um, here's the exact numbers that's going to happen or you know, here, here's the returns you're going to get. None of that because I knew whatever I put on paper for the numbers is going to be wrong. So I might as well tell them the story and, the, and, and, and sort of the, the fundamental demand that's there. Right? So, so the, the disproportionate amount of time I spent you know, in, in that presentation was talking about the problems I was noticing. Um, and so I talked to a bunch of people about... Um, you know, who were either teachers or students and, and their learning experiences, and I sort of distilled it down to the problems they're facing. And I reckon that if I could explain the problem very persuasively, the solution almost becomes obvious, right? It's like, you know, th this is what it's going to be. Um, so, so I think that kind of worked for them, and, and they sort of gave me the 500,000 um, pounds. And then, you know, over the next two months from there, we started compiling the team, building the first prototype, and all kinds of things. Um, and that gave the investors enough confidence to pile on and, and give another million pounds to me uh, um, in that process. Now, what happened there was, uh, I think I again over-indexed on the story and the vision, the mission, right? So when I was hiring people, it wasn't so much a, here's the thing I need to build. Do you know how to build it? Uh, if you do, I'm going to hire you. you know, not, not at all but like that. Right? Every hiring conversation I started with started with the story, right? And, and it wasn't so much them selling themselves to me it was me selling myself to them because i realized that if we're going to find the best employee they have to be people who are fully mission aligned they have to believe they're on some kind of massive mission to to change the world in some way some minute interesting way um and uh and the best people we interviewed were all the people who within the first 10 minutes in that story component would get so excited that we would spend the rest of the 50 minutes just discussing, oh, how, how can we bring this product and this idea and stuff like that. Um, and the internal rule that I set for, for myself, my co-founder, you know, what is the what is the metric for a good hire? Um, you know, I always say I have to feel like I'm getting an education in the interview. So what I mean by that is that um, for an average employee, when I give them the problem, they sort of say, okay, how do you want me to approach it? Right? And, and you sort of give them the instructions and they sort of go do that. Um, for the best ones, and I think I like to think that everyone on my team at the moment are like this. Uh, I give them a problem and they go, first of all, you're not thinking about the problem, right? There are all these other things you haven't considered in the problem. Secondly, when you look at the solution, you know, the way I would go about it is one, two, three, four, five. 
Um, and you know, if if I couldn't do this, then I would do it another way, like this. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think you need to frame a problem more correctly, and then you know, the solution needs to look like this, right? So they're they're sort of they're they're giving me an education, <laughs> and every person in the team needs to be a domain expert in what they do. And so I realized the second million really came because I think they saw that there were some super interesting you know people who were joining this company and collaborating to build something interesting. Um, and so I guess the secret sauce is you know, have a compelling reason and purpose for existence um, for the company, right? You know, it needs to have a reason for existence. And when it does that, and it's a, a, a powerful problem to solve, you're going to inspire interesting people to come work with you, and investors get attracted to that, and the money will come. Um, but all that money stuff is kind of external to this. It's sort of more figure out the problem you're solving and and, and get inspiring people on board because everything else sol solves itself from there. Uh, so yeah, that, that's my uh, secret sauce, I suppose. Wow, I love that. So much passion, so much love. I love that. Um, now, I want to curious you know, about this process of you pivoting, right? You talked about earlier, you were in this you know, fancy corporate office, have a wonderful salary, so life is wonderful, you're solving problems, it's exciting at time. Now, to a startup where you are the catalyst, you are... You know, really picking each each of our winners, you know, the team members building something you are so excited, but yet you don't have a fancy office. I imagine you don't yet have all things figured out yet. How's that transition been for you? Was that easy? Was it anything surprising you along the way? Yeah, so I expected it to be really hard. Uh, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going from McKinsey and SoftBank, where literally it's the most uh, you know, uh, curated support environment you could be in, and then jumping into the dark. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, I felt more liberated and more supported than I could possibly feel, uh, you know, in the last few months. And I think what happened there was that, um, first of all, I inherently just love remote working in the first place. So uh, even when I was at McKinsey at SoftBank, I never really liked the office. So I don't hang out in the office that much. Uh, at McKinsey, people often got really annoyed because I would just not turn up on Fridays. Because <laughs> you know, usually you go to the client site Monday to Thursday and you come back to the main office on Friday. I'll just never go back because I'm like, I, I, I don't really like hanging around the office. I, I start falling asleep if I sit in the same spot for too long. So, so I can't do that. Um, and you know, at SoftBank, it was worse because I was traveling all the time. So I really had no obligation to go to the office at all. So uh, I was sort of a, you know, people call me a cross time zone disappearance act because uh, people in London thought I was in San Francisco and people in San Francisco thought I was in London. But then actually, I, you know, sometimes I so was just like in between and somewhere, right? So, um, so I never really liked hanging out in the office. Um, and being a fully remote team, and we're building Mana to be a fully remote company, we're probably not going to have an, an office uh, for the foreseeable you know, term. Um, it's been really liberating. Uh, we can still have all our social gatherings and get the team out and you know grab beers and all kind of stuff. But we can work whatever we want. People have flexible hours. Um, they can jump in and out of things. Um, we document everything meticulously um, on Notion and on Slack, so that you know everything and on Google Drive, of course. You know you basically have everything documented. And so when we onboard a new person, it's super fast. Right? You know they they immediately can find everything they need to. There's very little office politics in any way. Right? You know you, you don't feel like there's a group of people who are chatting, gossiping together while everyone else is external. Um, so I love that. It, it actually makes it much more healthy uh, to me compared to even some of the environments I've been in before. Um, but the big transition as a leader, I think, was the tougher part, uh, which is that 
at McKinsey, the way I was trained to think was to think very deeply about a problem, analyze it extensively, and then come to a solution in the end. And that is polar opposite to how an entrepreneur needs to work. An entrepreneur is more like, okay, <laughs> let's throw a ton of stuff at the wall and see what sticks, uh, and then go iterate, iterate, iterate. Um, and so that was a big transition for me. Um, and then also at both SoftBank and McKinsey, you have these enormous support networks and enormous feedback structures where um, you know how well you're doing because you're talking to your mentors, you're talking to your seniors, and they're feeding back all the time. Now as a CEO, um, you, know, you, you sort of have no feedback if you don't actively look for it, right? It, it's sort of there and you know, you're sort of there. So, so I've tried to create this feedback network around me where um, you know, every month uh, I do a one-to-one -one with every team member um, and uh, I basically get them to just be as brutal as they want to be about the company, about me, about what's happening, right? And, and just tell me all the terrible things that are happening. Um, and, and I love it because they tell me the most brutal things, right? You know, uh, I would have like a, you know, one of my interns who's this amazing, you know, university student would be like, James, you're not owning your role as CEO enough, right? Own it more, like take control, right? You know, really drive us. I, like I, I love the freedom, but I want you to drive us more, right? Something like that which I love because you, you get so much authentic feedback from them and they're the people who really matter right? because they're, they're your team. Um, and, uh, and similarly, you know, with a lot of mentors and angel investors and that kind of thing, I've had to actively just schedule time to talk to them about difficult problems uh, and get them to brutally tell me what is working, what's not. Um, and so I think it's been a real challenge building out those feedback structures. But in the past few months, now that it's more you know, it's more there. Um, I, I feel much more comfortable than I did, you know, maybe when I first started. Um, and I'm curious, James, you know, now you have this such an incredible journey and I'm curious, you know, looking back, do you ever imagine where you are today? Say when you were 20 years old, you were 16 years old, do you ever see that? And what would you tell your 20 years old if you yeah. were to him? I have always had a very strong conviction um, that I would eventually succeed in some way, right? So I have this like extreme ambition, like in that way, and it's not very healthy, right? It's like, it's this sort of, you know, crazy amb ambition. But um, I never thought that it would turn out this way. So if you asked me when I was 16, what's likely to happen, I would have said I would have become some politician, right? So I'd be like some politician in Hong Kong trying to make some policy, blah, blah, blah. Um, then uh, if you asked me when I was 20 and in university, I would have said maybe I would be a partner in some consulting firm or, or some ridiculous thing like this where, you know, I'd have a commercial career in a fairly conventionally successful sense and I'll do some other things like, you know, I'll be, you know, trying to be a trustee on a charity and do something mm -hmm. there, you know, that kind of thing, right? So very conventional thinking. Um, then now it's a completely different ballgame. Um, now, um, if I had to t say something to myself at, at 20, it would be basically stop taking yourself so seriously. Right? Don't focus so much on success in a particular way. Right? Um, you know, be authentic. Right? So draw out that that internal motivation more. You know, like really take that as as a thing that drives you. And um, and then finally, figure out who, who your true friends are. Um, and I think. Uh, the big mistake I made when I was younger was that I was very consumed by ambition. I was very consumed by the desire to succeed. Um, I had a very set idea of what that meant. Uh, there were all that turned out all to be wrong, right? Um, 
And as a result, I surrounded myself with people who were not very much true friends. There were more people who um, either were there because of the power and, and fame they were accumulating and they sort of wanted to get a piece of that. Or there were similarly ambitious and competitive people who were just sticking to you because they felt like this is my click and I can, I can be part of this. But over the years, I've realized that the people who are truly, who truly stay with you um, and who are great friends, they'll be there with you no matter what, are the people who authentically resonate with you, right? who, who believe in the same things you do. Um, and um, and they've remained my true friends ever since. And around three or four years ago, I made a very conscious effort to just distill my life a little bit. So like, I, I just stopped being so... Um, like I, I, I just... I just figure out you know, who are my true friends and I'll just stay in constant touch with them and really, you know, make an effort with them and everyone else. Uh, I'll just sort of, you know, keep at an arm's length and, and not, you know, force myself to go to parties that I want to, or go to events that I want to be in anything like that. And, and just, and just focus. And that's, that's helped so, so much. Like my, uh, my entire mentality and person has changed in, in those, in that time because of this. Um, so yeah, so that, that's, that's all I'd say to my 20 year old self. You talk about success a lot, you know, James. You talk about when you're younger, you have an extreme ambition, want to be successful. And of course, today you are the success story every step along the way. I'm curious, at this point in your life, James, what is success looking for you? What does that mean for you now and the future? So it's interesting. I always thought about, you know, the, the classic sort of money, power, fame, you know, is, is it really it, right? Um, and then I realized as I grew older and older that all three were things that are, were quite undesirable to me, which is quite weird. So money, I do have desire for money, but up to a point, right? It's sort of like, I, you know, there, there's a point at which you can, you can afford all the dinners you want. You can travel to the places you want to. You can afford rent. I, I don't really feel the, compel, uh, I, I don't feel the compulsory need to buy a house for example like i just feel like okay you can rent for a long time and you know you stay there that, that's kind of it um and so you you know there, there's sort of a threshold and really whether you have a million a hundred million or a billion it, it sort of is completely irrelevant at that point because it's uh, you know those things are you can't really spend that money and it's not very liquid and it's kind of irrelevant so so then there's a there's a cap to the money part yeah it's certainly important enabling factor but it, there's sort of cap to that then there's the power bit which I thought I was very into when I was a kid. I was like, you know, maybe this whole politics thing is all about power. And I was like, you know, maybe I just want a lot of power. Um, then I realized power is completely pointless if I don't know how I'm going to use that power and for what purpose. And so I realized that actually my desire for power was in many ways a outshoot of the thing that I actually wanted to do, which is, you know, the thing that gives me energy is when I see other people um, have their potential unleashed because of something I said or did for them, right? That, that, that's what gives me a lot of energy. And so I realized that to the extent I want power, that's the only thing I want to achieve. Um, you could conceive that in all kinds of ways. Like maybe it's just as a teacher, a lot of power to unleash a potential in a, in a kid. Right? Or it could be a politician who's, you know, creating a minimum wage policy that gives a lot of people uh, the ability to unleash their potential. It could be many ways, um, but that power component is only meaningful when there's a sense of purpose behind it. Um, and then finally, that fame component is just flat out undesirable. Um, and, and I realized this because um, initially I was very into this thing. I was like, I'm getting so many likes on Facebook, and like on LinkedIn, I'll post more, you know, that was, it was so good. Then I realized at one point past your close friend group and the people who somewhat know you, 
everything out there is kind of abuse and controversy and invasion of privacy. Like it, it's sort of like, you know, you, you sort of scale beyond that and suddenly it's just stress, right? It's like people start attacking you, they start doubting you, they, you know, all these things are happening. Um, and I look at that, but I really don't want that. Um, and then let's imagine a situation where I have a billion dollars and, you know, I'm a super billionaire and I'm super famous on Forbes magazine cover, whatever. Um, then that means that my kids, when they go to school, have to have security guards surrounding them every day. Um, I can't serendipitously go to San Sebastian and eat in a street stall uh, with like the best food I want. You know, um, I can't go in anonymously to a bookshop and browse books for a, a whole afternoon. Um, my life and the quality of life materially gets worse because of fame, right? So I'm kind of like, this is pretty bad. So, so over the last few years, um, I realized that I have these inherent impulses to want money, fame, and power, um, but that rationally as I process it, it becomes really obvious that these things are kind of silly. Um, and so now if you ask me what success means, um, it means I've got to a position where I have freedom. It means I've got to a position where I have the ability to enact the impact I want um, in the area I want it, which in my particular case is unleashing potential in individuals. Um, if I can get there, great. And if I could get there without having to, you know, have security guards around my kids and, you know, and, uh, and worry about being robbed every day and, you know, all those other things, even better. Right? So, um, so that, that's where I am at right now. It might change in 10 years, might change in two, I don't know, uh, but, but that's, um, that's where I am about success today. Wow, James, I love that so much. I think oftentimes in life, we just follow those innate instincts, whether it's the money, the power, the, you know, what you just described. But the fact that you're rationalizing every single one of it and <laughs> almost having a conversation with yourself or almost having a debate with yourself and you have so much fun and you come to a conclusion that truly is something true to yourself, which is so beautiful. And I'm just so inspired. So thank you for sharing that beautiful answer. My last question for you, uh, James, is what advice, what suggestion you'll give for our, you know, say aspiring entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs today in the process of fundraising or, you know, talking to investors or just getting something started? Like, what would you say to her or him, given that you've been through the process and you've been so successful at the police run and really building something so incredible today? The only thing I would say is find your voice and find your purpose. Um, and I say this because all the other things come with this, you know, whether you're going to get investor money, you know, whether you're going to get product market fit, whether you're going to get um, scalability, get in, uh, inspiring people to join you on the team, all those things come from finding your purpose and finding your, your voice and finding your purpose. I mean, find a problem that is truly worth solving and that matters to you. Um, and I see this worryingly a lot where a lot of people go, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, what do you want to start? And they're like, no idea. I, I, I'll just figure it out. You know, I want to be an entrepreneur. I know I want to be a startup person and I'll figure it out. But that's just entirely the wrong way to think about it, right? It, it's, it's more, you only want to be an entrepreneur if there's a problem you want to solve that matters to you. Um, and, and, uh, and too often, I think people spend too much time brainstorming potential solutions and replicating existing solutions instead of thinking about the problem um, and, and a problem that matters to them. So that's one thing. And the second of finding your voice, uh, it's that you know, I realized that when you're able to articulate the things that drive you and articulate the, the mission and values that you stand for, um, automatically smart and cool people would want to be around you and, and spend time with you and build things with you. Um, 
And that voice is so hard to find. Um, we, we don't often have the confidence to deliver that voice. We often worry a lot about how people want our voice to be. Um, and so people go to public speaking classes and try to be that or you know, try to polish the, the way they present and make perfect PowerPoints, that kind of stuff. But finding a voice is nothing about that, right? It's finding a voice is figuring out what is the authentic truth that you're trying to deliver and deliver in the most you know, authentic way you could possibly can as a person. Uh, and the, 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 the sort of examples I often draw up for this is like Elon Musk and, and Greta Thunberg. Uh, they are two of the most inspiring people in the world and the two of the worst public presenters the world has ever seen. <laughs> you know, Elon Musk stutters through every conversation. Uh, Greta Thunberg has very little emotion delivered uh, in her facial expressions when she speaks. And there's a lot of authentic emotion from what she delivers and the message that she's delivering. Um, the, the polish you have is no contest for the authenticity and the message you're delivering. And so to me, if you can find your purpose and find your voice, everything else follows. Um, so, so yeah, that's the, that's the one thing I would, I would leave everyone with. Oh my God, James. So, so beautiful. As you speak, I just felt in this, this, you call it goosebumps or love or joy just flow through my body. I feel so inspired. I love how you said it. And find your voice, find your purpose and rest will follow. It's so beautiful. I really felt, wow, so beautiful. So, Really want to say thank you so much, Jen, for your beautiful, beautiful insight. Thank you for today, you know, taking your time, sharing your journey, sharing your story, sharing who you truly are. And I think really, you know, help me to see, help me all to see beyond what is Mana, what is South and McKinsey, all the wonderful, you know, labels. Besides that, who Jen really is. So I'm so, so honored. I want to say thank you. And I want to thank you, everybody, for tuning today. We are so, so excited, so grateful. Thank you so much for your time. And we cannot wait to see you guys next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>